Welcome to the World Football Summit podcast, the show for football industry leaders who want to stay ahead of the game. We bring you the latest insights, trends, and stories from the experts driving innovation and progress in sports business worldwide. Join us as we dive deep into the ideas and initiatives transforming the world of football. From sustainability and innovation to player development, fan engagement, and everything in between. Our goal is to unite the global football industry and drive positive change and progress. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Today, we're thrilled to have Jordan Gardner return to the podcast, ready to deep dive into some of the industry's most trending topics. Our conversation spans unpacking the influence of European players joining the Saudi Pro League, the implications of Saudi's PIF privatization strategy on the global football landscape, analyzing the current valuations of MLS franchises, including whether or not they will be sustainable, assessing the ripple effects that Messi signing for Inter Miami will bring to the MLS, and finally, we ponder over the replicability of the Wrexham model across Europe. Jordan's perspective are sure to enrich your understanding of these burning issues. By the way, we're excited to announce that Jordan is a confirmed speaker for WFES Europe in Sevilla on September 20th and 21st. His panel promises to be unmissable. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Secure your place at www.worldfootballsummit.com. Again, that's www.worldfootballsummit.com. We really hope to see you there. Now, let's welcome, once again, Jordan Arden. Well, Jordan, welcome for a third time to the World Football Summit podcast. Uh, there's so much to talk to, and I couldn't think of anyone better to have on the show again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to be on to chat and football with you guys. So you've been a busy man. I don't know if you want to share a little bit uh, what you've been up to lately. Yeah, so I just got back um, from Europe. I was in Neon, Switzerland, speaking at a European Club Association uh, club management program, which was a really interesting program. Um, obviously, I'm doing consulting work for 21st Group, which is a data-focused uh, football intelligence company based out of London. So I'm over there quite a bit, uh, working, obviously, with a lot of American groups, looking at investing in football. So, uh, yeah, things have been busy. Lots of activity, obviously, now that the season's over. Uh, certainly M&A activity, people looking towards the new season. So that's been keeping me busy. And from the looks of it, you're going to be busy for a long time, I think. <laughs> yeah, especially from the American side, things are not slowing down on uh, on club acquisitions and investment in the sport. So that's obviously very exciting. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to bring you to the show again, because there's so many things to talk about and specifically everything that's going on in Saudi, um, Messi joining the MLS, the MLS valuations. I mean, I think it's going to be a great conversation. Um, so, you know, if you're up for it, let's, let's get to it. Um, and I want to start, um, I guess one of the, um, call it hot topics, if you will, one of the trending topics of, of the time is, is, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, or actually let me rephrase that European players going into, uh, Saudi Arabia. So, um, what are your thoughts on, on, on Saudi Arabia's PAS strategy of, of signing these players, um, offering top dollar? Look, I think it's an interesting strategy. It's been done before in, in other markets, China, Turkey, I think early days here in, in the U.S. at Major League Soccer. I think there's an acknowledgement that it's not necessarily a long-term sustainable strategy. I think at some point, um, the Saudi League is going to mature in, a, in an area where they're going to bring in players that aren't over the age of 30 or over the age of 35. But for now, they made a splash on the global scene and 
They brought in very credible players, Ronaldo, Benzema. They got very close to Messi. So I think they're doing something um, that seems more long-term sustainable. You know, I know a couple couple people involved in the league and they brought in some pretty sharp people uh, to run the clubs and, and run the league. So I think that's really interesting. And look, I think what people underestimate about football in that part of the world, particularly in Saudi, is it's a football-mad country. The rivalries between the clubs in Riyadh and Jeddah, you have clubs that have been in the in the Asian Champions League and, and done quite well at the FIFA Club World Cup. You had the Saudi national team beat Argentina at the last World Cup. So I think to underestimate what's happening in that part of the world uh, would be at your own peril. Obviously, with PIF owning four clubs, and then you have Aramco owning a club, and you have a couple other private entities owning clubs, that's interesting to see in the long run. I think their thought process, from my understanding, is they want to modernize and professionalize the league, professionalize the clubs, and eventually bring in other foreign investment down the road to kind of diversify the ownership capacity of the league. Um, so I think it's really interesting. I mean, look, it's going to take some time for them to mature as a market, but I think they, uh, they're they serious about football and serious about becoming a, a, a serious player on the global stage. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, fantastic. Um, do you think this is going to change, like the dynamics of the football industry, particularly in Europe or, or not? I mean, I think for now... You know, certainly it's affected the the transfer market, the amount of money coming out of Saudi, bringing players into, you know, from Europe into Saudi. I think that's affected the the amount of money that's being spent. But I think for now, I mean, there's talk about can Saudi be a top five or top 10 league? Can it compete with some of the leagues in Europe? I don't, obviously that's not going to happen anytime soon. But I think for now, they are affecting the player transfer market. They're paying wages that are two, three, four, five X above what most big clubs in Europe can pay. And that obviously is going to skew the financial markets. Um, I think for now, I think the most interesting piece of business they've done is bringing in Neves from, uh, from the Premier League. And he's 26 years old and he's in his prime and he's a national team player. And so I think if they go down that road more, um, more frequently, then we'll start to see more European clubs kind of say, whoa, you know, they are they're affecting our talent pool they're affecting our recruitment structure they're paying wages that we can't pay so i think for now it's a little bit of a wait and see approach um but it's been it's really interesting to see it develop and see what the strategy looks like going forward nice um and what do you think are going to be from a business perspective how, how is that going to change i mean the the traditional sports model because if you look at numbers um only with the signing of cristiano ronaldo and you see that the attendance there has grown like you know 150 percent just in one year. So do you think, um, I guess that that's going to bring in more sponsors. It's going to bring in more broadcasting rights. So do you think that's going to start a flywheel? Look, there's no doubt commercial revenues and revenues around the league will grow and have been growing already since Ronaldo came in. I mean, do they offset the amount of money being spent on players? Obviously not. It's they're in a massive, they're in a mass, massive uh, investment period. Uh, but that being said, you know, I think they, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but they, they expanded their international media rights by a factor of 10 or 15. You can watch the Saudi league in almost any country in the world now. So I think that certainly is going to have an impact on them growing commercially. You're right. Attendance numbers. I was reading an article the other day about ticket prices, how the club that Ronaldo's at was able to increase ticket prices significantly to grow their revenues. So the whole league is, it's very much at an infancy and, and they're understanding kind of on the fly, how they grow and how they commercialize. And I think, I think their goal was to go up about 4X in commercial revenue, but we'll see how that looks going forward. Um, but I think it's certainly going to grow, absolutely. And um, do you think at some point Saudi, the Saudi league is going to compete with uh, top European leagues? 
I think they have an opportunity to maybe be a top 10 league and compete with some of the secondary leagues. I don't foresee a likelihood that they would be able to compete with the top five leagues for now. I think there's just so much history and intrinsic value in those leagues. Um, obviously, the sky's the limit. I mean, there's been talk about MLS competing with a, you know the top five to 10 leagues for a long time, and I don't think we're particularly close to that happening at the moment. So look, it goes back to the conversation. If they can bring more players in Europe, top European talent that are either in their prime or young developing talent, then they have an opportunity to start to compete with the top leagues in the world. For now, as we sit today, I don't see it happening. But I think you never know. The sky's the limit. I think you're dealing with very sharp, savvy, sophisticated people who are running the league, who are funding the league, and they have a long-term vision. And this isn't like China where it's going to kind of disappear in five years. I think some people assume that's going to happen. That is not going to happen. These are serious people. So I w- nothing would surprise me at this point. But I think more a more realistic target would be a top 10 league and not really competing with those top five leagues, I wouldn't think that seems too difficult at this point. Right. Um, shifting topics a little bit, one of the interesting things that the PIF has done is uh, pr- um, the privatization of football clubs there. Um, so so what do you think about this? Because it's the top four clubs, if I'm not mistaken, that they have been, you know, um, quite, yeah, privatized, acquired. I don't know how you want to press a correct term there. But. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're calling it privatization. And obviously PIF is a government, tie- it's tied to the government. So is Aramco. So in ways it's a little bit semantics, but their goal is to spin off these clubs in more in a more global football sense that are owned by individual owners that can kind of stand on their own two feet and make these real businesses. And I think for now, they're not there yet, certainly with the, the amount of spending that's happening. But I think that is the goal in the long run. I think they'll, they'll likely have to spin off some sort of structure with the four clubs' PIF owns because there's certainly perceived or real conflict of interest there with one ownership group owning four clubs in the same league, especially four of the biggest clubs. I understand why they're doing it. It makes total sense. They want to create these rivalries. They want to solidify the league. If you look back to early days in Major League Soccer, you had three, four, five owners who owned all the teams. So it's it's kind of a, it's almost a self-preservation mechanism to, to stabilize the league, and that's understandable. But I think over the next three to five years, maybe even seven to 10 years, they're going to have to figure out a way to kind of spin that off in, in a little bit different of a way. But I think it's good for the league. I mean, there's no league that, you know, uh, as entirely funded by the government that is really self-sustainable. And so I think that is their goal in the long run. Whether they can get there, we'll see. But I think that's the thought process. Interesting. And I was actually doing research on this topic and um, looking at the ambition of the PIF with this. Um, right now, the, let's say, market value of the Saudi Pro League, I think it's uh, around $800 million. And the, the goal they have is to bring it up to $2.1 billion by 2030, um, and with their Saudi Vision um, initiative. Um, and also... The commercial revenue, um, I think in 2022 was almost like 120 million, and they want to bring that up to almost 500 million. So do you think these numbers are realistic? It's a good question. I mean, a lot of their commercial growth currently is internal, right? Some of that sponsorship number is government-owned entities. Um, Do I think it's realistic? Yes, I think it's possible. I think really they need global growth, and that's part part of what happens with the, the media rights. I think they need people in in Indonesia, in Japan, in China, in the U.S., watching games on television. And I don't think they're there yet. They have distributed the media rights. But as long as they can have players that attract the global media audience, whether that's Ronaldo or Benzema, then the next step is how do they monetize that? I don't know what their media rights structure looks like right now, but that is the pathway for them to, to grow in a commercial way that you just described. You know, they can only... Certainly, they can grow selling tickets and sponsorship in all those areas. They can certainly start selling players back to Europe at some point in the future. But it's going to entirely come down to that media rights structure and if they can get eyeballs globally and monetize that. And, well, you're also knowledgeable about the governance space. And do you think all of these, uh, you know, dynamics 
is it going to change the governance structures of football or is it just going to be something that's isolated in, in Saudi Arabia? I don't think there'll be any governance change. I'm, I'm a bit cynical when it comes to this kind of stuff. I always get asked if regulations coming and this and that. I mean, it's highly unlikely. Um, obviously, there are discussions about governance issues related to regulation on multi-club ownership because technically PIF owns four clubs. There's talk about governance related to our, you know, are these Saudi clubs and PIP overspending and, and skewing the markets, the transfer markets in Europe? I think it's highly, highly unlikely we'll see any regulation. That's just not, that's not really in the best interest, I think, of any anyone in the ecosystem, let alone of any interest to the FIFA, UEFA of the world. So I think, you know, this will kind of be, this will stay in the market in terms of Saudi, in terms of the way they want to run this league and do things. It'll kind of more be up to them whether it's sustainable in the long run. Um, but I don't see any sort of regulation coming in and changing or affecting the way they're doing things. And do you think the model is sustainable in the long run? Uh, meaning um, that, that a sovereign wealth fund, you know, like the PIS, um, is actually owning clubs. Uh, do you see this happening in, in areas of the world? Or is it even what the PIF is doing? Is this going to be something that's only for the short term? Or is it going to be, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've had discussions with other sovereign wealth funds over the years in other parts of the world who have looked at or are investing in football. So I think from a sustainability perspective of a, of a sovereign wealth fund owning football clubs or investing in football, sure, absolutely. They're more well capitalized than pretty much anyone in the space. I think what currently obviously is not sustainable is the amount of money they're spending on players. So, I mean, I think presumably that's a short-term structure. And at some point that's going to have to transition because no matter how much money PIF has and, and the Saudi Pro League has, they can't spend at this rate for the next five to 10 to 15 years. It just isn't physically possible. So I think the sustainability is just going to come down to how do they pivot as a league and how do they continue to become relevant on a global stage by not spending hundreds of millions of dollars on Ronaldo's and Benzema's of the world. Or maybe they do in a way that there's only one or two or three players, again, kind of like you have an MLS where you have like a designated player system and you're bringing in one one player like a Lionel Messi who is really growing your league, but the rest of the league is a little bit more skewed towards younger players, more cost-efficient contracts. I don't know what their their long-term structure is. So I think in some ways, they there's no reason they can't create a sustainable structure in the long run, but obviously what they're doing right now is much more growth-oriented. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now let's travel to another region of the world. Um, I want to ask you, what were your initial reactions to Messi signing for Inter Miami? I mean, look, I think it's great for MLS. I think it's fantastic for American soccer, especially with the World Cup coming up in the next couple of years. I think clearly, you know, it looks like his decision was based on personal reasons, not just financially driven. You know, what I think the most interesting thing that that I thought about when I heard this is, you know, I'm not sure Miami is ready for Lionel Messi. You know, you have a club that, Last I checked, this the last place in MLS. They're playing in a pop-up stadium. Uh, they haven't been a particularly well-run club for quite a while, probably since they entered the league. So I think it's going to be up to them and the league to really capture the opportunities when, when Messi comes. But that being said, I think you can't ask for anything better for a league. I think this is something that goes far beyond even David Beckham coming to Major League Soccer, which was a game-changer. Um, but look, at some point in the next two to three years, Messi will either retire or move on. Can Major League Soccer capture the casual fans, capture the interest, the, the more widespread interest? Because what's interesting is that, you know, obviously here in the U.S., soccer is clearly not the most popular sport. And, you know, normal things in Major League Soccer do not break through the kind of the mainstream media beyond not just sports, but mainstream media. Lionel Messi's signing was everywhere here in the United States and will be everywhere for the next two to three years. And so that attention and those eyeballs from casual fans, from casual supporters, from 
other sports fans who aren't necessarily focused just on soccer. I think the league has to capture that. I think the good news is the league has a has an international media rights deal with Apple where they can capture global eyeballs. They can cop- capture um, obviously interest in the sport here in the U.S. And so I think I think there's a lot of interesting things happening, but it's up to the league to kind of capture that, and we'll see. But uh, there's nothing bad to say. What's bad to say? I mean, it's amazing for for the sport here in the U.S. I'm actually thinking last time you and I spoke, um, you talked about how. Uh, Ted Lasso, Wrexham, um, the World Cup. At the end of the day, all of these things are making uh, soccer become quote-unquote embedded in pop culture. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just going to take it to another level uh, because, as you said, Messi is going to be everywhere um, at the end of the day. And, and people are just going to start seeing soccer everywhere and, and it's just going to be huge for, for the league. You know? And um, That's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you. I mean, because obviously this is going to have great impact in the short term and the long term. Um, let's see how it impacts into Miami. Uh, obviously, let's see how they grow and if, if they also get, get to be you know, a run. But how is that going to affect um, the other leagues? Meaning, obviously, they're going to get a huge boost in attendance. That's that's obvious. Um, and, and ticketing. But but what about the commercial strategies? How, how do you think? That's a good question. I mean, I think the other teams have to get creative. I think I already saw a couple teams coming out with, you know, multi-game ticket packages because they know that they're going to sell all their tickets out for when Messi comes to town. But um, it's obviously difficult. He's on one team. If you're a team in Houston and you see Messi once a season, how can you capture that interest? It's going to be difficult. I think the biggest thing you can do is that one game when you have a sold-out stadium of fans coming who don't normally come to your games or commercial partners at the game. How do you sell them on your product? Sell them on, this isn't just here. You're not just here for Messi. You're here for, in this case, the Houston Dynamo. I'm not necessarily sure how they do that. Um, and again, that's a bigger question to the league in terms of how do you capture his interest, you know, across the board. Um, but we'll see. I, I think that's that's their job. Was that that's what they get paid the big bucks to do is figure out how to capture that interest. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be fun to see. Um, and do you think this changes the perception of the MLS in the world uh, when when they see Messi actually signing and not going to not only not just signing for the MLS but also avoiding going to Saudi Arabia? I think so. I do think so. I think the perception of MLS has changed for the positive in the last couple of years, last five to 10 to 15 years. I think what we're seeing in Major League Soccer is many more younger players, particularly from South America, coming through the league, developing and then getting sold to Europe, to big clubs, and then having a lot of success in Europe. And so that, I think, has helped the credibility of the league. I think the fact that Messi wants to go to MLS, everyone understands that there's a lot that has to do with quality of life and living in Miami. And, you know, I think there are certainly a subset of people that are players that, you know, no matter how much money you spend, you give them, they're not going to be interested in going to Saudi. So I think there's no doubt it helps the league. How much it helps the league, I don't know. I think you still have a pretty decent subset of people who are skeptical about Major League Soccer in general and where it fits on the global food chain. But I think, you know, I think it can't hurt the perception of Major League Soccer. Yeah, I think not. And this actually, it's just transition well into another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is about the MLS club valuation. So, and it's just been amazing to see how much they have risen over the last few years. Um, so I want to ask you, not only what is what is your assessment of that, um, but what are the, some of the key factors that are driving those just, I don't know, skyrocketing valuations, if you will? I mean, look at supply and demand right now is a lot of it. You have a limited supply of clubs, certainly via expansion or via clubs that are available for sale. You have a lot of very wealthy people who are priced out of the top four major sports in the U.S. saying, look, soccer is a growth sport. We have the World Cup coming. We want to put our money in the sport. Maybe that maybe some of these people decide they want to put it in Europe, but a lot of them decide they want to put it in Major League Soccer. And I think that is driving a lot of the growth of valuations. 
I'm a skeptic. I don't think these valuations make any sense by any rational financial metric. You're looking at valuations that are, you know, in some cases, 10 to 15 times revenue, which to give you a comparison, most businesses slash football clubs are valued at between one and a half to two times revenue, maybe a little bit more, but that's usually it. So I think it's very much still a growth mentality that we, there is a perception that people believe. I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but other people believe this that soccer in America is still very much undervalued. There is an opportunity that it, this league can become one of the best in the world. Messi coming to the league is not going to hurt that argument by any yeah. stretch. The good news, and I'll give credit to MLS, is that they have excellent infrastructure. Most clubs have soccer-specific stadiums in a, in a way that the infrastructure is better than many, many European leagues I've seen. So look, at the end of the day, we'll have to see how things go. We'll have to see how the 26 World Cup impacts the, the interest in the sport. Same with Messi. But I think one of the misconceptions out there is that the growth of soccer in the United States is, is, is directly is just MLS. People just say, okay, if the sport is growing, it's MLS. Well, what happens is, as you may or may not know, is that the sport is extremely popular in the U.S., but it, in many ways, it's not MLS. It's League MX, which is the Mexican league, which is by yeah. far the most popular league in the United States. It's the Premier League. It's the Bundesliga. It's even things like people following the Wrexhams of the world or, or following the Portuguese league or the Dutch league, right? So I think MLS is a small subset of that ecosystem and it's growing, but it's a small subset. And if you just compare just straight up, for instance, the television ratings between the Mexican league and the, and the MLS and that television ratings, whether people like it or not, that's a metric that we need to use because that's where media rights companies decide how much they're going to spend. And that's the big driver of your commercial growth. League MX, you're looking at two, three, four, five times the number of eyeballs watching those games in the United States. That's not even talking about in Mexico. So I think that's the question that MLS has to solve for. The good news for MLS is the product on the field is getting better. They're becoming closer, generally speaking, to compete with the Mexican league. Our national team just smoked Mexico the other day. So that's good news for the league. But I think my biggest issue is that we've, from a financial metric perspective, the valuations and the perception of the league from a financial perspective has far outpaced where it's at. But We'll see if it catches up. To your point, I was actually doing some research for uh, another guest I'm going to bring to the podcast hopefully about the ratings um, uh, and the comparison between Liga MX and and um, yeah, and Major League Soccer. Um, and let me just share the numbers with you because I have them here in front of me. Uh, Liga MX in US, uh, I think it averaged uh, almost uh, 1 million viewers, uh, whereas Major League Soccer, I think it was like short of 350,000. So, yeah. I mean, and, and that was already up, you know, comparing to 2021 and maybe at some point that, that can actually levels up, but, but just for the audience to see the difference. Um, and going back to the evaluations, what you were mentioning at the beginning of the question is, it's just amazing to see that you have um, the, the San Diego franchise being valued at 500 million and then you look at a club like Newcastle and, and it's actually worth like, I think it's like 450 billion. I guess that begs the question, is that going to be sustainable or not? But I guess to your point, what you were saying is we'll have to wait and see. I think the look that that comparison is actually it's a really good comparison because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think the argument for MLS there, you could say, okay, look, MLS, we have a salary cap. There's no relegation, even though a club like in Newcastle right now, with the way it's being run, doesn't have to worry about relegation. You know, we have we have a, a system in place of governance in terms of we're here to make money versus a Newcastle where even at the level they're at, they're having to spend significant amounts of money and be very cash flow intensive to actually make the Champions League and win the league and be a competitive product. But that being said, that makes no sense to me. I don't really understand it. But again, I'm a European football guy, not an American soccer guy for the most part. So that's there's a reason I spend my time in Europe and not the US. But mm -hmm. I, 
I have a lot of friends and colleagues and people I respect who invest and are involved in American soccer. And I, I respect that. I, it just doesn't make sense to me personally. Yeah. I guess one of the things that people say is that, uh, you know, all of these dynamics between promotion and relegation actually affect the valuations of the club now. And, and, uh, and I think we can talk about the, uh, acquisition of the 49ers that they just purchased at Leeds United. No. Uh, and just because, and I would have to, con uh, the research that I've seen initially, um, is that just because they were, that Leeds were relegated to, to the second division in, in England, uh, the club was purchased at a reported discount, I think it was like a 400 million discount. So, um, what are your thoughts on that? That's a really interesting one. Um, you know, I know those guys pretty well and the guys at the 49ers are really sharp. I think the idea behind that whole process in terms of renegotiating the purchase price makes a lot of sense to me because now you have a risk factor, you know, you have parachute payments going down to the championship. But if you look at a Leeds United in the championship on a normal season without parachute payments, I mean, you can make an argument it's worth 50, 60, 70 million pounds tops. Um, and they're paying, I think, 200 million US. I think it is what the rumor price is. So they're in an interesting position where they have parachute payments. They have a somewhat competitive advantage to get back to the Premier League. And if they can do that, they just got a discount, right? They got a significant discount over what they had previously negotiated in terms of a purchase price based on a relegation. But if they sit in the championship for a couple of seasons and run through that competitive advantage, then they've significantly overpaid for a championship team, right? So look, relegation is obviously a huge factor in valuations, especially for a club at that level. I do think Leeds is a bit of an outlier in terms of you have a big brand with a great history. Um, so there's a lot more to it than just straight up club got relegated. So it's worth less money, but specifically American groups are very sophisticated and they're going to take advantage of what they can take advantage to. And I think you can look at it from both sides. You can say, look, the 49ers got a massive discount just straight based on relegation, but they also are taking a big risk in terms of coming into a club now that's down in the championship and there's no guarantees they're going to come back up no matter how smart they are. That, that's true. I mean, at the end of the day, the results depend on what happens on the field, right? I and mean, this is, I think to your point earlier, you know, without a promotion relegation system in Major League Soccer, right, there's a reason, there's stability. And I understand from a pure investment perspective, you, you just want to make money in soccer. Like, I get why you would go to MLS. You don't have to worry about relegation. You don't have to worry about overspending when you have a salary cap to a certain extent. It's very much a stable system, right? European football, in some ways, is the exact opposite, right? It's very unstable. There's, it's very much the Wild West in terms of how much money you can spend. And you can go down. You can, you can get promoted. You can All sorts of crazy things can happen, which make it very difficult just from us, from a running a football club perspective, to budget, um, to understand what your long-term financial plans are when there's so much instability. And I think that instability can cause a de significant decrease in valuations, which is understandable if you look at it in comparison. Yeah. But then again, and, and if we stay in Europe, um, I want to reference a fantastic study by Football Benchmark. They published it a few weeks ago. And I'm going to quote one of the conclusions there, which is that the aggregate enterprise value of, of the top 32 plus in Europe um, is actually above pre-COVID levels now. And I think it's up to like almost 52, 52 billion which is like 40% uh, versus previous year, right? Um, now, the reason this, this is happening is because there's club transactions happening happening at higher um, uh, higher multiples. Uh, the new uh, UEFA uh, financial sustainability regulations um, and also the projection of international revenues, right? Um, do you think these valuations are sustainable based on those three factors or... Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you're certainly seeing, looking at a micro level, attendance numbers in almost every league across Europe post-COVID skyrocketing. Um, you're seeing interest in the sport, viewership on television go up significantly. And obviously you're right, 
there's a subset of that, which is M&A activity, transactions, valuations are growing. I still think there's a strong perception of, of uh, the fact that European football is undervalued, which I think is true. I do, I am a bit skeptical in terms of two areas. Number one, that international media rights and media rights in general are just going to kind of go up indefinitely. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in football just kind of assume that every media rights deal is going to be at a significant multiple increase. And while viewership in many leagues is growing, there's only so many media rights companies that are willing to to grow those, basically grow the pie. I mean, there's a perception at some point that Apple's going to become more aggressive. Obviously, they came into Major League Soccer. Amazon, Netflix have come in and, and to a certain extent. But I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that media rights are going to incidentally go up. I think the French league right now is going to be a really interesting case study where you know, Messi left the league. We don't know what's going to happen with Mbappe and Neymar. Obviously, the French league is pretty clearly the fifth most popular league. I think I wouldn't surprise me at all, certainly at a domestic level, if their media rights either stayed flat or went down based on all those factors. We'll see what happens on the international side. So I think that could be a little bit of a change in the kind of paradigm in terms of people looking and saying, oh, wait, we can't just, valuations aren't going to exponentially grow because our biggest driver of revenue, which is media rights, aren't exponentially going to grow. And the other one that I'm a bit skeptical on is financial fair play. As much as I think it's important, I mean, is it enforced? Do people get around it? I mean, Man City obviously has, you know, all the charges related to, to improprieties around financial fair play. I'm somewhat skeptical that financial fair play actually does anything or changes any serious behavior in the marketplace. I, that does, that's not to say that I don't believe that European football needs some serious, serious cost controls because many, many clubs are spending themselves into oblivion and it's not sustainable. But that being said, I'm not sure any sort of increases or, or more regulation of financial fair play will tangibly affect the global eco, uh, the ecosystem because I just don't think people take it seriously and it's just not, this is my personal opinion. I don't think it should be like that, but I just think that's unfortunately the way it is. You mentioned in France and you're totally right. That's going to be a very interesting case study, but Let's flip that around. Are there any regions, any leagues, any clubs that you believe are going to be, um, are going to see a surge, in value, uh, an increase, let's say, in, in valuations uh, in the upcoming years? Um, is South America uh, going to be the next uh, quote-unquote goldmine, or you don't see it happening just yet? Yeah, I mean, I wrote an article a couple of months ago after I was down there, uh, actually on holiday, and I visited a couple of clubs because, of course, I have to drag myself to go see football clubs on a month. Holiday. Um, you're seeing investment in Brazil, obviously, and I think that's a bit complicated because a lot of the you know the clubs are going from associations to private businesses with a lot of debt. Um, Brazil's a bit of a wild west in terms of how do you run clubs, but there's no doubt in my mind that clubs in South America are massively undervalued. You see the talent coming out of that part of the world, the amount of money that's being spent just straight up on players. That if you can basically control the pipeline, control these academies control the areas. I'm not saying that's easy by any stretch. You have to choose the right club and have the right management team in place, understand the right country and all those kind of things. But if you can do that, I think to get a club, you know, take, you know, Enzo Fernandez, right, coming out of Argentina and all Argentina is a little bit more complicated in terms of buying clubs, which you can't really do at this time. But, you know, Chelsea's spending 100 million euros on Enzo, Enzo Martinez. Like you can buy a couple of clubs, you can buy one big club just for the amount they just spent on one player. So starting to think about controlling that talent, I think is really interesting. Um, I think there's other markets, there's certainly other markets that are undervalued. I think some of the markets in Asia are quite undervalued. I think Japan is starting to open up to foreign investment. Australia's is a market I've looked at quite closely. Um, so there's a lot of markets outside of you know, the traditional Western Europe leagues where there's a lot of opportunities, but there are challenges 
a lot of places are difficult to do business. They're more kind of growth football markets and it takes a certain kind of expertise. And the only group I've seen really go into more emerging markets per se, emerging football markets and have success is City, City Football Group. And obviously those guys know what they're doing and they're really smart. They're, they're sharp. They have a club in, or I think they have a JV on a club in Japan. They have a club in Australia. They have a club in Brazil. They have a club in all these markets we're talking about. But some of the other groups that have started to dip their feet in these markets have had a lot of trouble. Um, and it's just difficult. And we work with a lot of American groups, or I've done work with American groups on multi-club and looking at some of these markets. And I do think a lot of people underestimate how difficult it can be to run, just run a football club, period. But run a football club in a place like Brazil or a place like Japan, it's just, it's just very challenging. And to your point about City, uh, I think they've embraced the long term because uh, they've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you know, they've been there, it was ages ago. That they started, that they acquired, right. I think, in New York City. So at the end of the day, that's something that also you have to take into account. Not only is it hard, but you're probably not going to see results in the show. I think what, what people don't understand with City, and I get a lot of, oh, we want to replicate the City Football Group model. And I talk and I write about a lot of, a lot of multi-club issues. But City Football Group has massive infrastructure at a holding company level that oversees all their investments. So, you know, I mean, we can talk about executives and they hire really, really good people. Um, a lot of their executives end up going to work at big clubs and primarily clubs and whatnot. And that's part of it. But they have a database of players that they internal database of players that is used across all of their clubs and they're moving players from point A to point B to point C. And obviously you can make the argument, are they doing this necessarily? Is this profit driven? Are they actually trying to make money? Are they moving players really in any cohesive way to Manchester City? You can make the argument they aren't doing those things. But that being said, I mean, Look in New York City FC, right? They got it at a very low valuation of that club and it's gone up significantly per our discussion on MLS valuations. Same thing to a certain extent with their club in Australia. You know, they have a growth club in Brazil that is certainly targeting, um, that they just got into their targeting player development. You know, they've gone into, they've gone into France. They've gone into a lot of these markets. So they're sharp. They're super savvy. There's just, they know what they're doing in a way that I don't think anyone else in this business really does. And I give them a ton of credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also there, not only on the on the sporting side, but also on the business side. No, they're always at the top of the rankings so the most, uh, you know, the highest brand value. They're at the top of the money league. I mean, at the end of the day, they're... It, it's all tied together, right? A global network of developing and selling players and which markets to go into and how do we run our clubs? Like, yes, some of those are business decisions and some of them are football decisions, but many decisions are very much a little bit of both. And they bring in people that have a really sharp business and football background, which is something that I think is really valuable skill set that not too many people in this business have is they... Not to say that someone like myself should be driving football decisions, but like I can understand when we're signing a player if we're overpaying or underpaying or does that player fit into a football strategy and structure that we have. I think a lot of clubs, and this is a little bit of a side tangent, but clubs can get in a little bit of a silo where you can bring in business-focused people who know how to sell sponsorships and tickets, but they know absolutely nothing about football versus on the other side, you have people on the football side who know nothing about business. And then you're in a discussion about selling a player who could be a massive commercial, it could, it could affect you commercially, it could affect your tickets, it could affect your on-field performance. And so you're saying, you're saying, wait a minute, this is a kind of all-encompassing decision that we need to cohesively as a football club look together. And it's difficult when people are a little bit in their corners. But again, different conversation for another day. Oh, that's, that's going to do for a lot of conversations. And um, uh, yeah, um, I think I want to finish off this conversation with uh, uh, something that we talked about before. And that I think it's a model that, you know, well, which is Rexham. And specifically, I want to ask you about that model because I think your your perspective after, you know, your your ownership of, of Helsingborg in the past, I think it's going to be an interesting take. So um, I don't know if you see the Rexel model as being sustainable. Uh, and remember, we've talked a few times about uh, the the framework of culture, stability, and, and leadership as to, you know, as a way to ensure 
the sustainability of a product. So I don't know, just briefly, what are your thoughts on the Rexham model? Is it replicable? Is it going to be sustainable based on that framework? I think for them and their ownership group and the the what they bring to the table for now, it is, just, it is absolutely sustainable, right? You're going to continue to have an, an influx of capital from this media rights, uh, from the documentary, obviously, as long as it's going on or from the TV show. Um, as long as Ryan and Rob continue to be engaged, which they are, and I have no reason to believe they're not, as long as they continue to have a good management team in place, which they do, it is entirely sustainable. I think I just checked the other day. I think they're favorites to get out of League Two and get promoted again this year. Wow. Whether they're going to get to the Premier League ever, that's probably not going to happen or it's a separate conversation. I think the area that people run into is other people trying to replicate it is very difficult, right? In terms of you don't have the the global visibility that Ryan Reynolds has. You don't have the access to get a documentary on Disney Plus or FX or whatever streaming distribution you have, right? You just, you don't have the the kind of inherent competitive advantages that these guys have. And so I think that model is next to impossible to replicate. But again, to answer your question for them, what they built, there's absolutely no reason it can't be sustainable into the future. I think the interesting point for them really will be maybe one more promotion where they get into League One, which I think in the next year or two, where that financial advantage they have kind of gets negated by you get to a level where there's a lot of money being spent and you have real serious players who either are clubs that maybe in the last five to 10 years have been in the Premier League or have ambition to go to the Premier League. So right now they're at a level in last year in the National League and League Two where relatively small business, small clubs, they're a couple million bucks they're getting from Welcome to Wrexham gives them a competitive advantage. They're extra funding from their background in Hollywood gives them extra funding, but they're going to run into people with real serious capital and they'll either have to raise real serious capital be, to be competitive or they're going to have to change their business model. And that'll be a big question. But I think for now, the short, short term, they're totally fine. I think they're in a good place. Yeah, I agree. And to that point, I think also it happens in football. Uh, I think uh, football has a short memory. And uh, what I mean by that is, um, at some point, because it always happens, it's kind of like a roller coaster. At some point, they will go down in the results. They're not going to be as good. So it's going to be interesting to see how all stakeholders, meaning fans, partners, broadcasters, react to hopefully that doesn't happen. I'm not saying I want it to happen. It's just, it's just a reality of the, the sport, right? If things get complicated on the football side. No, it's a good question. If they don't get promoted this year, how many seasons does the TV show last? How long do the Brian and Rob stay engaged? Again, I have no reason to believe they're not going to continue to be engaged. But at some point, you're right. At some point, things are going to become more difficult for them. And then the question is, what happens? Now, they spent two seasons in the National League. They didn't get promoted right away, which I think helped their story a little bit from a, from a television perspective. But you know, you're right. It's going to be an interesting conversation. There's no guarantees by any stretch they're going to get promoted this season. Um, so we'll see. I think, look, it all comes down to do you have engaged ownership? And as long as Ryan and Rob are engaged in what they're doing, I think they'll be fine. At the time, at some point when they move on to the next project, which could may or may not happen, then then they're going to have to figure out what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, interesting. You so many things that are going to happen. So I'm just going to have to invite you back um, so many times, Jordan. <laughs> Um, and as always, this has been an amazing conversation, Jordan. I want to thank you so much. Uh, I think the audience, once again, is going to learn a lot and going to understand more of what's going on behind these dynamics that we're seeing in the industry. Um, any last words that you want to share with the audience that, or anything that we're going to talk about? No, no. Looking forward to the World Football Summit event in Sevilla in, in September. I'll be speaking on a panel uh, on multi-club ownership. So that should be a fun one. We have a couple of people, um, close colleagues of mine who are in the space along with myself. So that should be fun. So looking forward to that.
it's going to be very fun. And I think the audience should really, really, um, you know, look forward to that one because they're going to learn quite a bit. That panel is going to be on. Jordan, thank you so much. Uh, bring you back soon. So, you know, with all these realities coming our way, uh, we're just going to have to talk about them uh, as many times as the audience needs. That sounds good. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jordan. Have a good day. And there you have them. Another enlightening chat with Jordan Gardner comes to an end. Always a treat to explore the dynamic landscape of the football industry across the world with him. What are the big takeaways from our conversation today? Don't take Saudi's ambition to become a top league lightly. They have adopted a marathon mindset, not a sprint. But if they're aiming for global growth, they must be able to distribute media rights in international markets. The MLS needs to win over the casual MLS fan, and Messi might just be the key. Financially speaking, though, MLS valuations raise eyebrows when compared to their actual revenues. Media rights in Europe won't keep ballooning forever. This could be a threat to the sports business model. Similarly, while financial regulations are extremely necessary, they will not affect club valuations. Finally, the Rexham model has its unique context, making it challenging to replicate. It's doing well for now, but its sustainability remains to be seen. And if it reaches the top tier leagues, that will be something to watch. As always, big thanks to Jordan for sharing his insights. Looking forward to more of his wisdom at WFS Europe in Sevilla. Is there anything else that stood out for you? If so, please reach out across social media and let us know. And remember, you can subscribe and rate the podcast on the platform of your choice. And you can share it with other industry colleagues. You can also sign up for our newsletter, where every week we share industry trends, enlightening conversations, and other updates from the sports industry. You can find the link in the show notes. Nothing else from my side. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the World Football Climate Podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and we hope to see you next time.